0: As you know, we semi-recently finished our journey through the book of Exodus, and as promised, we've doubled back to take a look at the Ten Commandments. We wanted to narrow our focus on them and study them a little bit more in depth, and one of our goals has been to memorize the Ten Commandments together because to us they reveal the character of God, and so what we've done is we've created a mnemonic device. I googled this week and verified that using your fingers to remember the Ten Commandments is indeed a mnemonic device, and so uh, if you want to, uh, we'll rehearse the ones we know, and then we'll add the new one in today, and so if you can hold the one finger up, that's, you're going to have no other God besides God, right? He's the only God, there's none beside him, and then we've done two fingers like this to say there are, are to have no idols, not to bow down, to make any idols in his image, are not going to bow down and worship them and so you can do this number no idols looks a little bit like a dog wolf pack Uh, the third commandment we said we're going to do three fingers like this and if you're a Hunger Games fan you do the Katniss Everdeen you kind of kiss the fingers I can't do the whistle (whistles) but you remember we're not going to take the Lord's name in vain not going to take the Lord's name and are going to guard our math, not going to misuse his name. Uh, today we are on commandment number four, and so you can do four fingers like this, and if you're like me, you can take the other one and put it like this, and then you can just rest your head, right, like this, and kind of close your eyes, and remember uh, we're going to rest or keep the Sabbath day holy is, is the, the fourth commandment. The word Sabbath or Shabbat li- means literally to cease or to rest, and so we remember the Sabbath day by resting. All that said, we're going to be back in Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to cover verses 8 through 11 together this morning. And the main idea that I want you to walk away with, and it's the, the application of this, and so if you don't remember anything else from this sermon throughout the rest of the week, this is what I want you to remember. It's that we are to celebrate God's work in creation and redemption by resting. That's what rest is, is to celebrate God's work in creation and redemption. We're going to talk about what the Sabbath is, how it is fulfilled in Christ, and what it means to us. So with all that in mind, let's pray and we'll get started together. Lord, do not allow us to confine our faith to extraordinary occasions, but enable us to acknowledge you in all ways in the ordinary, in the ordinary every day of our work In the ordinary everyday of our rest. Help us to not pursue you for only an hour a week, but empower us to practice your very presence every moment. We thank you that you've spoken to us in your word. We ask that you would give us ears to hear. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's remember the context again. God has drawn Israel out of Egypt in order to draw them into relationship with himself. And so he's brought them out of Egypt and across the wilderness. And now they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai as it is enveloped in smoke. And it has the sounds of trumpets and lightning is is filling it. There's thunder. The mountain is shaking and the people are shaking along with it as they listen for the voice of God. And God is speaking to them. And it's into the middle of this conversation that we find ourselves in verse 8. this is what we read. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. This is the longest commandment, and it comes in three parts. In verse 8, it, we are told the what. In verses 9 and 10, they specify for us the how. And verse 11 explains the why. Uh, First, Israel is called to remember the Sabbath day. They're to practice keeping this day as set apart, as holy. Uh, The Sabbath day is special, and what makes the Sabbath day special is that it's different from the other six days, because on it, no one works. Everyone rests. As we said earlier, the Sabbath actually means to cease or to rest, and, and God is serious about his people resting. I mean, did you notice everyone has to rest on this day? Fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, slaves, immigrants, even the animals. Everyone inside the nation of Israel is to rest and to remember. Why are they to rest? Well, verse 11, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. The people are to rest because God rested. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes uh, a bunch of stuff, um, everything, really. Uh, He makes everything, and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And finally, at the end of six days, God says of all creation, it's very good. He sees his works good, and then he rests. And we ask the question, why? Why would God rest? Is he tired? Well, no, God doesn't get tired. He rests because he is satisfied in the work of creation. He's satisfied in what he has done. And so he looks back at everything that he's made, all the work that he's done through the week, and he says, man, that's good. That's really good. See, God's rest means that he wanted to now stand back in leisure and savor the beauty and completeness of his creative work. I mean, this is the real uh, basis for hallowing and blessing the day of rest. God is saying in effect, let my highest creature, the one made in my image, stop every seven days and commemorate with me the fact that I am the creator who has done all of this. Let him stop working and focus on me. Let him remember that I am the source of all that he has, that I am the fountainhead of his blessing. You see, when God rests, is an example for us about how we can rest. Also, when God works, it's an example for how we ought to work. We ought to work in such a way during our weeks that when we do rest, we can look at what we've done and say, it's good. You see, when God rests, it's because he's so utterly satisfied with what he's done. Rest is a celebration of completed work. God is satisfied with what he's done on the six days of creation and he rests, and so he commands his people to likewise work six days and rest one. The Sabbath is established as a celebration of God's created or completed work in creation. When Israel observed the Sabbath, they would be reminded that they didn't provide for themselves, that their work wasn't what brought them fruit, but instead it was God who was providing for them. The practice of the Sabbath in Israel was a declaration of dependence upon God. So you see the Sabbath is rooted in creation. People rest because God rested. But, but there's something else here. Uh, Moses repeats this commandment in Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy, if you take the word apart, it just means second law. It's kind of the second giving of the law. It's a bunch of sermons preached by Moses. In, in chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, this is how Moses states this command. He says this Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then in verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Moses expands the purposes of the Sabbath from remembering creation to include also remembering redemption. The people of Israel used to be slaves. They didn't get any days off. Their work was never completed. They never punched out. God commands the people that he adopted out of slavery to put down their hammers, to turn off their cell phones, and to stop checking their business email, and to rest. What a gift. When Israel observed the Sabbath day, they would be reminded not only of God's good work in creation, but also of his good work in their salvation. The practice of the Sabbath in Israel was not only a declaration of dependence upon God, but also a declaration of freedom that they had been redeemed and brought out of Egypt. So in some, the Sabbath is both rooted in creation and it is the fruit of redemption. The command to remember and rest is ultimately a command to celebrate God's work in the creation of the world and in his redemption of his people. It's easy to see why the Sabbath would be a centerpiece of Jewish life. Uh, Now, now God did provide some precise definitions for the Israelites, uh, but he didn't make it exactly clear how much work or or what type of work was allowed. So he he identified some kinds of work, uh, and not many of them. So there are some things that are clearly uh, permitted on the Sabbath, or not permitted, I should say. Kindling a fire, gathering manna, selling goods, and bearing burdens. These things are clearly prohibited in the Old Testament for the Sabbath. And then there's some things that are are allowed. Uh, Military campaigns, marriage feasts, dedication feasts, visiting a man of God, changing the temple guards, preparing showbread and putting it out, offering sacrifices, uh, duties of priests and Levites, and opening the east gate. Those are the two lists of things that you're permitted to do and not permitted to do as it relates to work on the Sabbath And as you can tell, this is not exactly an exhaustive list. And so what happened were rabbis were left to discuss what exactly counted as work, right? And so the ancient Jews debated such matters as whether they could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath or whether they could break off a, a dead twig from a rose bush. In fact, the religious leaders created an elaborate system uh, that would distinguish work from non-work for them, right? It's illustrated well by a ruling in the Mishnah, which is kind of a a commentary on the Torah, uh, which is like the Pentateuch. Anyhow, this is what the, the entry says. If a building falls down on the Sabbath, enough rubble can be removed in order to discover if the victims are dead or alive. If alive, the victim can be rescued. But if dead the corpse is to be left until sunset, until the conclusion of the Sabbath. And so, so building falls down on a bunch of people. You can move enough rubble to see if they're alive or not. If they're alive, you can save them. If not, uh, just stop what you're doing, and go home and come back later. Uh, this is not something that, that went away uh, with, the, with the coming of Christ or even in contemporary Judaism. If, if you know really Orthodox Jews, uh, they're not going to use any electricity uh, because they'll consider it a Sabbath violation. I, I, I say that lightly. They're not going to turn any electricity on Uh, And so what they'll do is they'll use candles around their apartment or uh, they'll leave the lights on from the night before because to turn the light on would be considered work. Uh, They're not going to eat any food that's cooked on the Sabbath day. They're going to prepare it the day before because they don't want to do any work on the Sabbath day. Preparing their own food would be considered work. Anyhow, it's it's amidst all of this debating about what counted or didn't count as work that it seems the Jewish people lost sight of what the Sabbath was four. And we see this really clearly uh, as Jesus encounters some Pharisees in the gospel of Mark. If you want to, we're going to spend a little bit of time there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading at verse 23. We read Mark 2, starting verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? I mean, they're basically saying, if you're so spiritual, why are you breaking the Sabbath, Jesus? And Jesus responds to them, Have you not read, this is verse 25, what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus is referring to a story in First Samuel twenty-one, uh, wherein David is fleeing from Saul, who is trying to kill him. So he's on the run, and he comes to this city called Nob. Uh, it's about a mile north of Jerusalem, and this is where the tabernacle is at that point in history. And so he finds himself hungry and out of food, and so he calls upon the priest of Nod for help. And eventually, the priest gives David and his men the bread of presence to eat. Now, we've went through Exodus recently, and so you know all about the bread of presence, that it was set out on that nice golden table and was symbolic for the people of Israel being in the presence of the Lord, and that it was only to be eaten by the high priests, or the priests that were on duty, and that new bread would replace it every Sabbath. This is not ordinary bread. It's not for ordinary people. It's only for priests, and so what happens is David and his men enter this tabernacle in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. That's who the era is associated we, with at this point. The actual priest is Ahimelech, I think. Yeah, Ahimelech. I can't say it real well. Anyhow, it's during the time of Abiathar. It's associated with him because his priesthood was the longest, and They eat, David and his men eat, this bread of presence, which is consecrated and it is against the law for anyone to eat except for the priests. Jesus is making a point here. He is saying if David could be allowed by a priest to violate a divine prescription, then the disciples and Jesus could be allowed, or I'm sorry, the disciples could be allowed by the Son of God to violate an unbiblical prescription on unbiblical regulation of the Sabbath. And so he's making an argument. It's, it's the greater to the lesser. He's saying if David could violate this rule, certainly Jesus and his disciples could violate a human rule. Jesus cites David's violation of the Torah not as an excuse for his action, but as a precedent. In making the allusion to David, Jesus is inviting a comparison between their persons. He's inviting a comparison between himself and Israel's royal Messiah. Je- Jesus is saying, David did this, and now one greater than David is here. He's saying, like David ate when he was hungry, so too are my circumstances special. Just as David was the king yet to be enthroned, so too am I. See, Jesus is the true king, and he's not yet recognized at this point. He's making a declaration about his personhood and about his royalty. his identity he continues in verse 27 he's basically saying to them, you've misunderstood this whole sabbath deal in the first place he says the sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath jesus is reminding his listeners that the sabbath is a wonderful gift he says how do i know that it's a wonderful gift The, the sabbath was made for man and not man for the sabbath verse 28 so the son of man is lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying, I know the Sabbath is a blessing to man and not a burden. I know that it's a gift because I created it. I'm God over the Sabbath. Sabbath is about a satisfied rest that celebrates and delights in God's work and creation and redemption. Not trying to figure out what is work and non-work. Still, the religious leaders, they don't quite get it. uh, And so... uh, Jesus continues. There's another Sabbath episode in Mark's Gospel at the beginning of chapter 3. Right on the heels of this one, uh, we read this, and it's Jesus' turn to ask them a question on the Sabbath now. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, This is the question Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill, but they were silent. I mean, it's not a hard question. This should be a no-brainer. Is it it okay to do good or to do evil, right? Even if it's not the Sabbath, the answer should be, yeah, it's good to do good. Jesus looks around at them with anger. because They're silent. Grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. Don't, don't miss the irony here. Uh, the authorities stay silent and by their silence deny Jesus the right to do good on the Sabbath while they conspire to do evil on the Sabbath. Right? Jesus says, is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath? They remain silent and then in verse 6, They give us their answer by their actions. They conspire to kill him. Killing is lawful in the minds of these Pharisees. Conspiring to kill is lawful on the Sabbath, but not Jesus' healing of the man's hand. They've got the Sabbath so twisted up. They conspire to kill Jesus, and they they eventually succeed. We're familiar with Jesus, the author of the Sabbath, finding himself... Restless in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood as he prepares to walk towards the cross. Restlessly, he prays and his disciples sleep and he finds them and he tells them, take your rest later because the hour of unrest is upon you. Restlessly, he walks to the place of the skull as he is spit upon and treated as a worm rather than a man. Scorned and despised. Writhing in pain and anguish, he hung restless on the cross, having his hands and his feet pierced, his garments divided by the casting of lots. Restless he endured the mocking calls of he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Restlessly He cried out with a loud voice the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you remember as we read that psalm together a little bit earlier, it continues. And I imagine these words would have come from Jesus' mouth had he continued. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night but I find no rest. See, what's happening here is on the cross, Jesus experienced the restlessness of separation from God so that we can have the deep rest of knowing that he loves us and our sins have been forgiven. Jesus was restless so that we can be restful. Jesus lived the life you should have lived. He died the death you should have died. And he rose from the dead so that you might enjoy the true and deep peace of the Sabbath rest. True and deep relationship with God. See, the the word Sabbath is also a derivative of the word, same root of the word shalom. They're very close together and so it also connotes with us some of the same things as the word shalom which is a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life when jesus is saying i am the sabbath or i'm lord of the sabbath he's saying i am the sabbath i am the source of the deep rest that you need he's saying i am the one that can bring to the world and will bring to the world a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life Puts it this way in Matthew chapter eleven verse twenty eight, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All of you take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is inviting us to rest in him by faith. He's calling all who will listen to celebrate his great work in creation and in redemption. He's calling us to stop trying to find satisfaction and rest in our own work and effort, but to instead find true satisfaction and deep rest in him, in his work for it is by his work that we are saved. All that said, how does the Sabbath apply to us? How does the Sabbath apply to us? This is where I think uh, John Calvin's paradigm for parsing the law is really, really helpful. And so if you've ever considered why we believe uh, some parts of the Old Testament law are binding on us while other parts are not, uh, we're going to try to answer that together right now, all right? It's like why uh, we don't mind eating shellfish or wearing a polyester shirt, uh, but we do think it's important to honor our father and mother or uh, not take the Lord's name in vain. So what Calvin did was he, he divided the law into three parts, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. Moral laws are rooted in the character of God. They endure forever and they're reinforced in the New Testament. Consequently, everything the Old Testament says about loving our neighbor, caring for the poor, generosity with our possessions, social relationship, our commitment to our family, on and on, all these things, they still apply to us. Civil laws uh, would instruct Israel on how to run their government during this unique period in history wherein God was their, their king. They were a theocracy. He ran the whole deal. And so these laws were aimed at teaching them how they're to run their government. And so in the Old Testament, sins like adultery or incest would get punished with civil sanctions like execution because at the time, God's people constituted a nation state and so all sins had civil penalties. But we see in the New Testament, uh, the people of God are in assembly of churches all over the world living under many different governments. So, the church isn't, isn't a civil government. And so, sins are no longer dealt with by um, civil punishments, but instead met with exhortation and, at worst, exclusion from membership. This makes sense, right? So, we're not stoning anybody for dishonoring their parents or taking the Lord's name in vain. We're not killing anybody for collecting sticks on the Sabbath, like Israel had to do in the Old Testament. All right, ceremonial laws. These are aimed at distinguishing Israel's worship practices from other religions. Israel's feasts, the sacrificial system, clean laws, food laws, and all of the things like that set Israel apart as God's holy and distinct people. And they also served as symbols that paved the way for the coming of Christ. They anticipated Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he comes as the true and better Israel. He he comes as the fulfillment of the ceremonial laws. And what he does is he serves also as a a cornerstone of a multi-ethnic kingdom that he establishes and names the church. So, So for example, when Jesus appeared on earth, he declared all foods clean. He does that in Mark 7. And basically, in his ministry, we see him ignore a lot of these cleanliness laws. We see him touching lepers and dead people. But instead of him becoming unclean, they become clean. I and mean, all of this is driving to, to the end of, of what Jesus is going to do. Right? The reason he does these things is clear. Because when he died on the cross, the, the veil of the temple was torn. And what this shows us is that Jesus is doing away with the need for the entire sacrificial system along with all of its cleanliness laws, along with the ceremonial laws. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, and now it's Jesus who makes us clean. I mean, the entire book of Hebrews is aimed at explaining to us uh, how the Old Testament ceremonial laws were not so much abolished as fulfilled in Jesus. Hebrews' whole point, if you want the main idea of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than what was before. He's better than the Old Covenant. The New Covenant surpasses the Old Covenant in glory. It's infinitely better. Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. And so here's how all this works out. Anytime we look at any law in the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, we're going to ask these questions. Is this a moral issue rooted in the character of God? Is this a ceremonial issue meant to distinguish Israel's worship practices from those of other religions? Or is this a governmental or civil issue related to the separation and preservation of Israel as a nation? And so when we apply this truth to the Sabbath, it becomes clear that the Sabbath is a ceremonial law rather than a moral one. That is, its purpose was to distinguish Israel by drawing their minds to the promised deliverance, and rest of God. Because it's ceremonial, And especially because it's fulfilled in Christ, we should not practice the ceremony anymore. Paul makes this clear uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that the Sabbath is no longer binding on believers. This is what he writes. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Dr. Schreiner writes this, Paul identifies the Sabbath as a shadow along with the requirements regarding foods, festivals, and the new moon. The Sabbath, in other words, points to Jesus and is fulfilled in him. The word for shadow that Paul uses to describe the Sabbath is the same term that the author of Hebrews uses to describe Old Testament sacrifices. The law is only a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The point is the Sabbath was a shadow and Christ is the reality, the true rest. Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath law and offers to us the promise of full rest in God's presence, the promise that the Sabbath anticipated or looked forward to. And so we best honor the Sabbath by resting in the finished work of Christ on our behalf rather than seeking to honor certain days, festivals, or years. We don't need the shadow anymore because the substance is here. So what this means for us is that the Sabbath day, in terms of how it's practiced in Israel, is for Israel only because it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. But the principle underneath the sabbath, it is for us. Right? The particulars of the sabbath don't apply to us, but the principle does. Dr. Schreiner, I think is again helpful, he writes this. It is wise naturally for believers to rest. And hence, one principle that can be derived from the sabbath is that believers should regularly rest. But the New Testament does not specify when that rest should take place nor does it set forth a period of time when that rest must occur. So even though we're freed from the particulars of the Sabbath law, we're still God's people. We're still made out of the same stuff that the people of Israel was made out of. And so it makes good sense for us to follow the Sabbath principle and build rest, or Sabbath, into our lives. We should practice spiritual rest each and every day of our lives. We should Sabbath in Jesus daily, daily celebrate the work of our salvation that was accomplished on our behalf, celebrate the fact that we get to rest in God's presence, rest in the accomplished work of Christ. But it also makes good sense for us to build physical rest into our lives. It makes sense to carve out periods of time where you can relax and refocus yourself on what God has done in his work of creation and redemption. It's important at this point to say, rest looks different to different people, right? Uh, One of the ways that this has been made really clear to me is just in my marriage. So like when Chelsea and I go to the beach and and think we're going to have a day of rest, we think of really different things. Uh, She wants to go on runs and swim and build sandcastles and dig holes and throw those little balls that skip across the water and go on long walks, on and on and on. I want to sit in one spot with a book and and a cold drink while moving between reading and sleeping. I don't want to do anything else. All that other stuff, that sounds like work to me. We have two really different ways of resting. The point isn't how you rest, but that you rest. And that in your rest, you are consciously remembering what God has done in creation, blessing us with all these many good gifts that point the way to him. And what he's done in redemption and reconciling you to himself out of your sin. I love what uh, Jared Wilson wrote a book called The Story of Everything. How your dog and the Swiss Alps fit into God's plan for the world. Wonderful book. Uh, I'm going to quote him at length here. This is what he writes on the issue. God is not a miser with joy. So while our rest ought to regularly look like sleeping or simply sitting in prayerful silence, it should also come with great bounding leaps of fun. We are not meant to be perpetually solemn, according to C.S. Lewis. We must play. This is something children understand instinctively. They don't even have to be reminded to play. They don't even have to be reminded to play. They, They just do it. Part of growing up is realizing that there are times you shouldn't be playing, of course, but part of growing up ought to be remembering that there are times we should. The spirit of play is part of the creativity of rest. Little kids get out of breath, they get flushed cheeks, they come falling in the door at dinnertime after a long afternoon playing in the neighborhood, smelling like puppy dogs. They have skinned knees and grime under their fingernails. There are rocks in their pockets and grass stains on their sleeves. Their hair is messy. Their eyes are wide. It's hard work playing so well. They cannot wait to get back outside and do it all over again. And this is all so God-glorifyingly beautiful. They enjoy God's creation. In play, we tap into the very creative heart of God. And so sometimes we rest well by playing hard. We must work hard at resting. See, rest, ironically, is an activity that must be prepared for and then pursued. If you do not prepare to rest well and do not pursue rest, you will not rest. The busyness of life will crush you. There are a bunch of ways to build rest into your life and you need to find a rhythm of work and rest that works for you. Here are a few things that I think are helpful. Uh, At family dinner, one of the ways that you can rest during this period of time, even if you have kids that complain most of the way, like I do, is you can turn off your cell phone. Put it in a different room. Refuse to take calls that relate to work. As you sit back and enjoy whatever it is you're eating, giving thanks to God for his provision. If you're an extrovert, one of the things you can do to prepare for and pursue rest is make sure you have time to hang out with friends, right? I don't know what you guys do, you extroverts. Maybe you go bowling or to the movies or sh- I don't know what you do. But make time to do it. And while you're doing it, thank God that he energizes you with people. Thank God for creating people in his image, that you get to see a glimpse of who he is and who they are. Introverts, make time to watch Netflix or football, or read a book. Doze off do on the couch and do it to the glory of God, thanking Him for creating these small pleasures that remind you of the rest you have in Him. All of us do well to take naps and plan trips and to sleep in every once in a while. We all need to make uh, physical ways in our life. I think we do well to, to build physical rest into our lives that points us to the spiritual rest we have in Christ. We need to be planning for and pursuing ways that we can be reminded that we need to celebrate what God has done in creation and redemption. We do this best by enjoying his wonderful work. One of the best ways to build rest into your life uh, is probably the most common is, is taking one day off a week, just like Israel used to. When you take it, it's not really that important. But what most people do is they'll take Sunday off. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a, an establishment of kind of a unique day, the new day of worship. They call it the Lord's Day. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday. is the day we meet together. And so what happens, a lot of people go, what better way to remind myself to celebrate God's work in creation and redemption than, than by coming together with his people in corporate worship resting there spiritually together and then going home and kicking up my feet or, or playing or doing whatever it is I do to rest physically? Why not combine the two on the same day and say, this is the Lord's day? I don't do that. I work on Sunday, so Monday is usually how that works out for me. The point is that you take a day. When you take a day in practice or time, it doesn't have to be a whole day, when you practice this Sabbath principle by taking time off, It is a disciplined and faithful way to remember that you are not the one who keeps the world running. You're not the one who provides for your family. You're not even the one who keeps your work projects moving forward. God is. The practice of the Sabbath principle is a declaration of dependence on God. When Israel would take the Sabbath day in an agricultural society, that meant that had big consequences. That meant falling behind. One day off could mean the, the difference between a good and bountiful harvest and a not so good harvest. And what would happen is that God still met the needs of the people because they were faithful to his command. Sabbath, when we practice this principle, is a declaration of dependence on God. I think some of you feel like your work is never completed. Some of you feel like you're never really able to rest. Always anxious, never at peace. Friend, I want to exhort you to relax because at the end of the day, Jesus has completed your most important work for you so that you can rest in Him. And He's also promised that you can depend on him to meet your daily needs for you. So you can trust him. If we are not able to rest physically, it may be because we aren't resting in Christ spiritually. When we rest, we're making a declaration not only of our dependence on God, but of our freedom in Christ. I wonder, do you trust God enough to rest? Are you free from slavery to sin? That's the spiritual aspect. Let's look at the physical aspect. Do you trust God enough to rest? Are you free from slavery to your work? Let's press it deeper. I think there's always a work underneath our work, wherein we find our identity. I mean, what's the first or second question you ask new people when you meet them? Hi, my name's Bob. What do you do? And we identify them by what they do. Do you identify yourself with your work? Are you unable to rest because you're so focused on your job? Christ has made you free. He's given you a new identity. It is not factory worker or salesman or pastor or whatever it is you do. It is Christian. It is loved. It is someone who has been reconciled with God. That is who you are. That is the identity that you must rest in spiritually and remind yourself that you are resting in by resting physically. Church, resting reminds us that God is sovereign and we are not. It reminds us that our identity is not in our work, but in Christ. It reminds us that we are not slaves to sin, but sons of God. Brothers and sisters, remember the Sabbath. Come to Him. Come to Him, all you who are weary and burdened. He will give you rest. All of you take up Jesus' yoke and learn from Him, because He is gentle and humble in heart. And in Him you will find rest for your souls. For His yoke is easy, and His burden is light. Remember the Lord of the Sabbath, who makes and keeps His people holy forever. Rest and rejoice in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus by celebrating God's wonderful work in creation and redemption. Friends, rest. Father, there, is, there are some parts of Scripture that are, are difficult for us to understand and apply and to hear. But we pray that you would help us to hear and to listen. That you would help us to trust you enough uh, to rest spiritually in your work, to find our identity in you rather than what we do. Pray that we would trust you enough to rest physically as an example of that, to apply this principle to our lives so that what would most mark us is not our work, but the rest we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.